Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Tattersalls. We are returning to Persuasion for our conversation today. We're also in the first chapter of the book and therefore still being introduced to characters and their backstories. We are learning a bit more about Mr. Elliot, Sir Walter's heir presumptive. Since Mr. Elliot is the most likely individual to inherit the baronetcy and the Kellynch estate, Sir Walter tried to push for a marriage between his daughter, Elizabeth, and Mr. Elliot. But things didn't go according to plan. <laughs> so this is from, from the book. Instead of pushing his fortune in the line marked out for the heir of the house of Elliot, he, meaning Mr. Elliot, had purchased independence by uniting himself to a rich woman of inferior birth. Sir Walter had resented it. As the head of the house, he felt that he ought to have been consulted, especially after taking the young man so publicly by the hand. For they must have been seen together, he observed, once at Tattersall's and twice in the lobby of the House of Commons. His disapprobation was expressed, but apparently very little regarded. Mr. Elliot had attempted no apology, and shown himself as unsolicitous of being longer noticed by the family, as Sir Walter considered him unworthy of it. All acquaintance between them had ceased. Sir Walter, not impressed. So in the middle of all this family tension, we see that Sir Walter is particularly annoyed with Mr. Elliot since they were seen together at least once at Tattersall's, which seems like a rather benign reference, but if you listen to this podcast... <laughs> you know that we are obsessed with these niche references. And so we cannot leave this one alone. <laughs> Saddle up, everyone. We're here to talk about Tattersalls. So Tattersalls was the name of the most famous horse auction house in England at the time that Austin was writing Persuasion. And one small thing to note, in Austin's time, Tattersalls was actually spelled as a possessive noun with the apostrophe S because it's named after a person. So that's how we've spelled it in our episode title. But it's now known simply as Tattersall's, no apostrophe. Tattersall's was founded by Richard Tattersall. He started his career as a stud groom to the second Duke of Kingston. His responsibilities as stud groom would have included coordinating a wide range of horse breeding activities, not just arranging for the stock and the breeding, but also helping with foaling. So he was a bit of an aficionado with horses. He definitely knew his way around the stables. Yeah. So he works his way up. He becomes the Duke's stable master, gaining some renown for breeding racehorses particularly. As early as 1761, for instance, he was placing advertisements in newspapers like the General Evening Post, announcing the horses he was covering and the prices for stud services. He was really starting to make a name for himself. By 1766, he had made enough money to start his own horse sale yard near Grosvenor Place in London. He was really successful in these first several years, so around 1773, he took out a 99-year lease on a new location at Hyde Park Corner. While he's at this location, at Hyde Park Corner, he grows a reputation for selling top-notch thoroughbreds, as well as all sorts of gear, for the intrepid horsemen. He purchases one of the most celebrated racehorses of the day, named High Flyer, for the price of 2,500 guineas. That is a lot of money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> for, especially for this time. Oh, yeah. And by purchasing such a high-profile horse, this really sealed his reputation because then everybody wants to deal with him particularly. 
according to Rudolf Ackermann, who in 1815 wrote The Microcosm of London, or London in Miniature, he actually tells us that Tattersall's is, this is a quote from his work, the grand mart for everything connected with the sports of the field, the business of the turf, and equestrian recreations. So it's like, this is your go-to one-stop shop for this sort of thing. Richard Tattersall was also friends with the Prince Regent, so there was definitely a sense of prestige to the place due to this royal connection. And by the time that Richard Tattersall died in 1795, he had developed a solid reputation as the expert on horses, and Tattersall's as a place of business was likewise established as the go-to place for the wealthy to purchase their horses. So really, in a pretty short amount of time, he had taken this kind of startup business Mm -hmm. and really turned it into like the place for horses. Yeah. So it's kind of just interesting to note that Tattersall's actually remained a family business all the way until 1942 with the death of Somerville Tattersall. And that's when the company ownership shifted to his business partners. And then obviously Tattersall's today, again, this is without the possessive apostrophe S, is still a massively influential bloodstock auction house in Europe. So now let's focus on why this reference to Tattersall's is actually culturally significant in terms of Austen's novels. So Tattersall's became a place not only associated with the selling of the equivalent of like sweet muscle cars (laughs) in the time of Regency (laughs) England. That's a nod to my dad's passion for Mopar and muscle cars. So it's not just, you know, it's not just where you're going to get your sweet ride, but it's also really associated with high society. Yeah, this is where men with serious money and influence came to buy and sell horses. And I say men because this was a serious boys club. No (laughs) girls allowed. Whatever. Just trying to one up each other with their great horse knowledge. Right. Yes. And it really is like a destination for male social elite. It's, It's if you needed the best horses in all the land to show off how cool you are, you go to Tattersall's. Let's talk a little bit about the setup for Tattersall's, also known as TATS. We're not making up that abbreviation. (laughs) The auctions at Tattersall's were held outside in the courtyard, also known as the repository, which was surrounded by a veranda on three sides. Men who wanted to check out the items up for auction could stand in the center of the yard while the horses or other goods moved around the perimeter. So this gave potential buyers a chance to see the horses in action before the bidding actually started. And so these auctions were held on Mondays and Thursdays during the winter, which was the main hunting season. So that's where people are like buying and using horses perhaps the most outside of London. And then on Mondays only in the summer, according to Ackerman, on the mornings where there was no sale, this repository is a fashionable lounge for sporting gentlemen. And there are some actually fabulous illustrations from this era with the grooms running the horses around the yard, like showing off the horses. And they're like, winded and running the horses around. And then there's the super posh gentleman just parading around the courtyard, like barely paying attention to what's going on. (laughs) You know, the guys in the illustrations are clearly just there to like be there. It's just the cool place to be. So they're not interested in the horses. And I think in my mind, that fits really well. I don't think Sir Walter knows that much about horses, but he does know how to look posh. I mean, like (laughs) that is his forte. That's his thing. He knows how to be in a place where it looks like he has a lot of money to spend, even if he doesn't. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And how to look good doing it. I mean, he's very interested in looking good in the right places. Ackerman goes on to give a bit of a description of the repository, saying, These spacious premises contain accommodation for 120 horses, a large number of carriages and coach harness, as well as a commodious kennel for hounds. 
During the time that horses and dogs remain here for sale, which is usually but a few days, a moderate compensation is charged for their maintenance, and when sold, a small percentage ad valorem. So, so, so that's obviously how Tattersalls is kind of like making their money. Yeah, they're getting, they're just getting skimming a little bit off the top, basically. I find this part really interesting where you kind of get the idea of how much money is changing hands here in terms of purchasing. So on average, about 100 horses were sold per week at Tattersalls, which is actually quite a significant amount of money, quite a significant number of horses. And the types of horses that were sold were essentially saddle horses, coach horses, hunters, and race horses. And I do think it's really interesting to kind of look at the breakdown of how much each of these types of animals would have cost. And so I'm going to give you the breakdown according to Ackerman and, and how he kind of breaks this down. So saddle horses, they, they could cost anywhere from 40 to 200 guineas a piece. Coach horses would cost between 150 to 400 guineas. Hunters, the ones that you, you would actually use while you're doing your, your big hunt on your estate, those cost about 350 pounds. And then the real money is really race horses. And those cost about 1,500 pounds a piece. So massive amounts of money happening here. It is worth pointing out, you know, there isn't a market here at Tattersalls for agricultural horses, because please, that is so plebeian. This is not where you come to get your horse to drag your plow for you or whatever. Right. These are the fancy horses, right? (laughs) And up until around 1800, there was even a fashionable house of entertainment known as the Turf Tavern that was part of the Tattersalls premises. Ackerman describes it as having a dining room, though not large, which is uncommonly elegant and was fitted up at a very great expense. The ceiling alone, which is adorned with allegorical paintings, cost 800 guineas. The sides of the room are enriched also with paintings and sculpture, with the addition of many detached pictures of horses, which were famous in their day for their exploits on the turf. Ackerman is really into this dining room. Allegorical paintings of horses. I love it. He loved this place. (laughs) He's really kind of heartbroken that it's not in business anymore. He's really looking back fondly from his place in 1815, just thinking, oh, remember? Remember that great restaurant? All those great pictures of those great horses. What a dining room. So beautiful. (laughs) This was really this opulent dining area for the sporting gent. And because of this, you could make Tattersalls an all-day affair. Tattersalls was actually more than just a place to buy and sell horses. I mean, obviously, that was its primary purpose when it started out. Yeah, well, and we do have the great dining room, as described. Obviously, my <laughs> mistake. <laughs> but I love that Deidre Lynch points out in her notes to the Oxford World's Classics edition of Persuasion that these club rooms, this is from her work, club rooms for members of the jockey club, as well as stables and a riding ring, were also a place where gentlemen could place bets on races. So this wasn't just bets for like the events that were happening in or around London. You could place a bet in London for any of the big races happening in Brighton, Newmarket, Epsom, anywhere else. So it becomes like the betting place for for horse races and things like that. According to Robert Morrison in his book, The Regency Years, once the races were run, it was usually possible to settle up at the track or at Tattersalls on what became known as Black Monday. So This betting could get pretty intense, and we'll definitely talk more about gambling and debt in another episode. But just as an example of how deep these bets could get, Morrison points out that in 1816, the racing results from Epson were reported to have caused no less than 300,000 pounds to change hands at Tattersall's. 
Again, that's 300,000 pounds in 1816 money. Right. Yeah. I mean, like thinking Mr. Darcy has 10,000 pounds a year. So that's a lot of cash going on just for this one race. Mm -hmm. This is a place where fortunes are being made and lost and where there's a lot of high society action. And that brings us back to persuasion and the possible connections that Austin is making to Sir Walter and Mr. Elliot with this specific reference to Tattersall's. Right. So at the beginning of the novel, we're told pretty much up front that Sir Walter is essentially bankrupt. It's pretty clear that this isn't because he's an avid horseman or a sport enthusiast. I mean, can you imagine all that outdoor activity? I mean, he has a complexion to look after. (laughs) But at the same time, he's absolutely a spendthrift who cares about appearances way more than anything else. So when he gets all worked up about Mr. Elliot, it's worth pointing out that he frames that in terms of appearance, right? So he says that he publicly took notice of him. And then he observes that they must have been seen together once at Tattersall's. So he's very, very fixated on this idea of how things look to society and what that kind of appearance at Tattersall's does for what for him and for Mr. Elliot. So for him, the real issue is that they were seen being social together. Again, you know, Tattersall's very much a place to see and be seen. And then Mr. Elliot kind of snubs him. And there is an entire culture built up around Tattersall's that makes it this very fashionable place to be seen by the wealthy and influential men in society. Prinny hangs out right. with Tattersall. Yeah. So this place has social capital. And if ever there was an Austin character who would like to believe that they could definitely hang with Prinny, you know, <laughs> it's definitely Sir Walter. So the Tattersall's illusion is very deliberate here since Sir Walter is essentially saying, it's a bad look for me. You know, people will notice I was hanging out with him in this place where everybody is going to notice. I mean, probably actually nobody would notice because Sir Walter, nobody cares about you as much as you care about you. Right. But I mean, like, he's very, very concerned about that. And I think it's also really important to notice that this reference to Tattersall's is obviously it's a reference to a place where fortunes are won and lost. So the fact that Sir Walter's finances are floundering while Mr. Elliot actually makes a savvy financial choice to marry for wealth, it's kind of embedded in that illusion, I think. Deidre Lynch also points out one other potential illusion, saying that, quote, Austin also uses the names of her characters to allude to Tattersall's world of thoroughbred horse racing. Stallions owned and bred by the Wentworth family Mm. of Yorkshire were frequent race winners during Austin's youth. Now, I realize that that's kind of a deep pull for a connection, but it is just possible that the Tattersall's reference is also linking the rising fortunes of Wentworth, while the House of Elliot is kind of just running amok. Because again, we are not trying to argue that it's because he lost all of his money at Tattersall's. Like, I don't think that that is necessarily the connection that's being made there. It's more about sort of what it represents as a place that he would have taken really seriously as a high society location. And that people are very aware of each other's financial status in places like that. I think the best connection between Sir Walter and Tattersall's is also really well put by Lynch when she writes, Visits to Richard Tattersall's auction house might be to Sir Walter's taste simply because Sir Walter shares with breeders of bloodstock their solicitude about pedigree. Just what a burn. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's true, though. Sir Walter is such a snob. He is obsessed with his pedigree, as his obsession with Debrett's clearly demonstrates. And it's the only thing that he cares about, because again, he thinks that he is so great, even though he is the worst. <laughs> so let's talk about kind of how this features and maybe some of Austin's other works and, and pop culture. And so 
it is really important for us to mention that horse racing, and particularly betting on horse racing, is very relevant to Tom Bertram in Mansfield Park. We plan to do an episode on that horse racing and gambling and the debts that Tom accrues in a separate episode. But it most definitely needs to be mentioned here because Tom undoubtedly would have spent a lot of time at Tattersall's. Tattersall's also frequently shows up in historical fiction set in England during this time. So if you've read any amount of historical romance, you've probably come across casual references to Tattersall's either as a place to see and be seen, a place where a character we're supposed to admire is conducting, you know, like serious business, or a place where a character we're maybe supposed to read as gullible or immature is making potentially questionable decisions. Yeah, again, Tattersall's is where those fortunes can be made or lost really easily. So it makes sense that it shows up as a plot point, you know, in terms of what that represents to the culture, but also how people are behaving with their money and this obsession with horses and horse racing. All of this is just making me think about all the various characters in Austin's fiction who might spend a day at Tattersall's. And the one that comes to mind as the absolute worst person to spend a day at Tattersall's with is John Thorpe, because <laughs> you know that he has a lot of things to say about horses. All of them wrong. All of them wrong. <laughs> Absolutely. He does not know what he's talking about. It would just be, what a miserable day. <laughs> not even the beautiful dining room could make up for that experience. Allegorical horse paintings can't recover this thing. <laughs> you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And you can also, if you are so inclined, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which we always appreciate. And we wanted to share this review from Bell 34 who says, The Austin podcast you didn't know you needed. I thought I knew all the stuff, but each episode adds another layer to my enjoyment of Austin and her works. I find myself both learning and feeling like they are my best friends because they get it. And that is actually a condensed version because Jessie Bell had so many lovely things to say and we are already <laughs> blushing. Thank you so much. And stay tuned for next episode where we will be talking about Regency Theater with our guest, Lauren Weathers. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.